The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com. Would you guys please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We will be reading out of 1 Corinthians this morning. As it says, but as, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the man also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word. What's up, fam? Good to see you guys. Some of you are like, who are you? I, uh, man, it is so good to be back. I honestly have missed y'all. We had, uh, my wife and I had a marriage, uh, uh, marriage retreat that we were at out in Nashville, Got to see some of our peeps in, uh, in Nashville. We don't speak the name Tennessee in this church because we've lost too many people to that state, but um, it was fun to see them. And then I got, our fam- whole family got COVID. So anyway, we are healthy. We're back, and uh, it's good to see your guys' faces. <clears throat> For those of you who don't know, my name is Jared, and I have the honor of being one of the pastors here. We want you to know that your story is welcome here. Every twist and turn of your story has value to God and to us. And no one is too bad or too mad or too far from God to matter to him or to us. And that's because God is the author and the hero of all of our stories. He has a story for Los Angeles and each one of us gets to be a part of God's story for LA. And so we're so excited that you're with us, that you get to be a part of what God is writing here and and, uh, and joining us with with us. This as we get to journey on figuring out what God's will is and what his story is for us and for L.A. Let me wish you a happy Mother's Day. It's awesome. Thank you, moms. We appreciate you. Uh, We want to recognize, though, you've heard this a little bit already in our service, that some of you had amazing, wonderful moms, and we are absolutely thankful for that experience. But we know that today can also be a painful day for some of us. Some of us have lost our moms. Some of us had moms who were poor examples of motherhood. For some of us, our moms were not the kind of moms you can find a Hallmark gift card for. You know, Uh, dear mom, you were sus, but I know you tried. So uh, that's not an easy card to find, right? So like, we, we get it. Some of us have been trying to be moms for a long time, and we suffer silently when we see people who seemingly take for granted the deepest unfulfilled desires of our hearts. So here's the deal. Whether you're here today celebrating because your mom was and still is amazing, whether she was not, 
Whether or not you have become a mom or you're still waiting, we celebrate the fact that your mom had you. Surprise note, every one of you has a mom. I know, I know. Uh, and, and, and look, no matter what kind of mom she is, we're thankful that she gave us you. And so we're celebrating you today. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to the family. Uh, we do have some flowers both for celebration and for mourning. We've got a small gift to give you. And then uh, Corey, once, amaz- once again, amazingly, is doing a photo booth for us. So thank you, Corey. Appreciate you, bro. Awesome. I don't know. It's almost like you're good at photos or something, but whatever. <laughs> All right, we are nearing the end of our journey through 1 Corinthians. We have been in this for a long time. Some of you are like, we just got here. We didn't even know we were going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, and so we are, we're coming down to the last couple weeks. We're excited to be wrapping this up. We're excited for all the things that God is going to do in the next year uh, through the scriptures he's got. But as we wrap this down, I want to kind of set the stage for where we are at again. Apostle Paul has, is writing to the church in Corinth, and in the same way, he's sort of wrapping up his message. And he's uh, answering questions the church in Corinth had asked him, hey, what do we do about this? Hey, how do we work this life out? I'm confused about this. And he's also responding to some people who had gone and visited the church in Corinth and were like, Paul, you better do something. <laughs> this, this place is messed up. You, you better step in and say something. You planted this church and you left, and it's, it's a little out of control. And so Paul is trying to, in equal parts, be challenging and correcting and instructive and loving and, and like, come on, guys, you can do this. You got this, and stop it. Don't do that anymore. It's this, it's this balance that Paul is trying to live out as he helps the Corinthians learn what it means to live in this new life, this new gospel identity that has been a result of Jesus's resurrection from death. He's talking about how we have been saved, how we are being saved, and how we will be saved. And that's exactly what he's going to get to as he sums up for us today. This weekend, this weekend we're focusing on the resurrection and what it did, what it's doing, and the next week we'll focus on what it's going to do. And so for those taking notes, this is our big idea for the day. The gospel is our hope because of the resurrection. The gospel is our hope because of the resurrection. We're going to see how Jesus is the true and better Adam. And that as a response, we're called to be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. So let's go back and remind ourselves of the scripture that Justin read for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28 says this. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, and go ahead and circle that word first fruits. For those of you who don't, uh, don't know, you don't die from writing in your Bible. It's totally okay. No lightning strikes you, right? It's actually really helpful. I highly recommend a Bible that has some journal margins so you can take notes for yourself. But circle that word first fruits. It's going to be a great reminder for us later. We'll come back to that. And so uh, here's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So we have this comparison of Adam and Christ. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, there's that word again. Afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. 
When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but there's a lot in there that gets confusing. Good. It's not just me. Okay. Sometimes you don't, don't realize this, but when I'm up here, I'm preaching to myself. Right? It's like, oh, this is what Scripture's saying. Cool. So you guys are just getting let in on a little bit of my Bible study. Is all that's happening. It's like, cool, this is what God is saying. And, and, and I got a little confused, too. I was like, what, what is he talking about? So let's go and understand the context of this by looking at the very first word of our scripture for today. What's the first word? I know you're all afraid to say it in church. It's all right. What's the first word? But, yes. All right, relax. We're not junior hires here. It's okay. That's right. Anytime we see the word therefore or but, it means that they are referencing something that has come before and everything they're about to say is a result or a flowing out of what they have just said. And so if we go back to verse 12, we can understand why Paul puts this but in there. And so let's read from verses 12 to 19. Here's what it says. Let me get on the right page first. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say... So again, here's one of the questions that they have been wrestling with. They ask Paul. We get a hint here. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. worthless. You're still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Some of the people in the church are asking the question that many of us have asked. Many of our friends have asked. People around us have asked, are we sure there is something after this life? Are we sure that, this, that there's more than just this? Because I want to have hope in that, but sometimes, are we sure? Are you sure it isn't just this and then we're dead and gone? Now, Jesus addressed this with a group called the Sadducees. And he showed them through scriptures that there, at least according to Jewish scriptures, according to the Bible that we read, there is evidence that there is life after this physical life. And so Jesus proves that to this group, but it clearly was an idea that had been permeating for a long time. And so there's members of the church that are still wrestling with and struggling with this idea. Are you sure there is a resurrection? Are you sure there is a life after this death? And so Paul points out, look, without the resurrection at all. There is no hope. Apprenticing Jesus isn't just pointless, it's pathetic. So the reality of the resurrection is central to understanding who God is and what he's done and what he is continuing to do and what we are made as a part of that, who we are as a part of that and what we're called to do. All of it gets wrapped up in this central piece of the resurrection of Christ. And so this is why Paul actually starts chapter 15 by laying out how, uh, how he, he's showing, look, this is how you know the resurrection is true. Let me give you some tangible evidence for it. And so verses 1 to 8 helps us to understand. Paul says, now I want to make clear for you 
Brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as the most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised in the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and the twelve. Then he appeared over, to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one who was born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. And so I love this. In verses 5 and 6, he, he, he tells us who to go to to verify the story. He's like, hey, just don't, don't just take my word for it. These people are still alive. Some of them have died, but you can actually go talk to them because they're alive right now. He says in verse 3, look, I'm, I'm passing along what I, what I looked into myself, but don't just believe me. Go investigate for yourself. Go have a conversation. You can find them. It's not like there's just one or two of them. There's over 500 at one time plus other people. So by naming names, he's not just saying, just believe me and take my word for it. He's saying, look, all these people will testify to you what they saw. This matters because of how an important, how an important issue this actually is. It's the very basis of our hope in the gospel. And this brings us back to our scripture for today. We get to Paul's arguments that it happens and that it matters. Now he's going to get into the depth of it. So look again at verse 20 with me. Paul writes, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, that word first fruits, I love it. It's awesome. It's an agricultural term. As one author notes, it denotes the first installment of a harvest, but it promises more of the same kind to come. In other words, Christ is the first to be raised from the dead as a pledge or as an assurance or as promise that those who have been adopted as daughters and sons of the living God, those who are in Christ as apprentices of Jesus, will also be raised from life to death. That is our, the proof of our hope. This brings us to a more thorough explanation of what happened and how the whole story is connected from beginning to end. So for those of you taking notes today, this is our first observation of the day. Number one, Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the true and better Adam. What do we mean by this? Well, let's go back and continue our scripture. We'll look at verses 22 and 23. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all who will be made alive. Now, verses 21 and 22 here, this is where it starts getting a little confusing because this brings up some questions. First, the idea about death coming through one person, I mean, what's that about? And second, it states the resurrection will come through a man, and then it references Jesus saying that he, also it will come through this man. Is it saying Jesus was a man and not God? I mean, how do we unravel that? So let's start with that first question. Now, some of you guys know this. Some of you don't. Uh, some of us here have been apprenticing Jesus for a long time. Some of us are still trying to figure out what it means to apprentice Jesus. Some of us are somewhere in between. So let's remind ourselves of the gospel and the issue at hand. In the beginning, God created a kingdom. He was king, and he made human beings to represent him as uh, as pictures of who he was in that kingdom. Now, this is important because God never gave up his kingship, but what he did was he made human beings the representation of him, and he put them in that place to 
rule, to represent him as leaders of that kingdom. Now, Adam and Eve rejected that call, and they rejected God's kingship over them. They're like, hey, we're running this thing. We got this. We know better than God. It's going to be okay. And they stepped out on their own. That's a problem because it's not theirs to do that with. But that left us an issue in rejecting the call and the kingship. They actually traded that relationship with God with an an enslavement to sin and death. Now, God, being as loving as he is, didn't want to leave us enslaved to sin and death. He didn't want to leave us in that predicament. And so he promised to rescue us from slavery to sin and death and defeat the serpent who is bent (coughs) on keeping us enslaved. Now, God promised that delivery would come from within humanity as the offspring of woman. He would continue that lineage through Abraham's family and specifically Judah's royal offspring, King David. He promised that those covenant blessings would come to the world through an eternal kingdom because a Messiah king would rise whose kingship would never end. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute, the suffering servant. Through the servant and work of spirit, God would establish a new covenant and give lasting life to his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Jesus is the one through whom all these promises are fulfilled. God has had a plan from Genesis chapter 3, from the beginning of the Bible, all the way through till today. God has had a plan for the rescue and renewal of all creation through the person and work of Jesus. Okay, so that's, that's the sin coming through one man. That's the, the references to, to the, the rescue coming through one man. But why do they keep referring to Jesus as a man? There is a giant Christianese word. Thank you. I'll go ahead and take that now. I appreciate it. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, John, for getting that for Leah to bring to me. I appreciate it. Sweet couple. All right, here's the big giant Christianese word. The big giant Christianese word is hypostatic union. There's a quiz. You guys can spell it, right? Hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, we don't know how it works because God didn't tell us. All we know is that this is what it is, that Christ has two natures. He is truly human and truly God at the same time. How? I have no idea. If you figure it out, let me know. But why does this whole two-nature thing matter? Now, throughout history, the, the nature and character of Jesus has come into question. There are some people that have claimed that Jesus was just God in a human form, that he just sort of appeared as God but wasn't actually human. That's a problem. Or that Jesus wasn't God until he died and then God elevated him to Godhood. That's also a problem. Or that he's lesser God, the big father God, also not what Scripture says. Jesus has always been and always will be God. The Bible is clear that he's always existed. And yet, as we saw in God's plan, the rescuer needs to be human. Why? Why does it need to be human? Now, some of you have heard this before, but I think it's helpful. So here we go. Only the person who has been wronged can offer forgiveness for that wrong. Okay, so for example... Justin rolls a nat 20 and he's able to knock me out. He comes to me and says, I'm sorry. Can his wife, Kimberly, forgive him? No, right? She can say the words, but ultimately she's not the one that was wronged, right? Uh, Only the, well, she might have encouraged him, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) She had nothing to do with it, right? Only the person who's been attacked can accept the forgiveness 
of the attacker. Second, only the one who is the attacker can be forgiven. Justin can't come to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, and I say, Kimberly, I totally forgive you. It doesn't work that way. Because the one who is the attacker is the one that actually is, needs the forgiveness for doing the attacking. Since we have been treasonous rebels against God, only God can offer forgiveness for our sins. Nothing else can offer that because that's the one that we have sinned against. Since humanity is the guilty party, only humanity can pay for our sins. We are the ones that are guilty. We are the ones that must pay. If Jesus isn't fully God, he can't be a part of offering our forgiveness. If Jesus isn't fully human, he can't pay the penalty for our sins as a representative of humanity. Since Jesus has both natures, he can both forgive and be the one perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty and die in the place of humanity. And that's what brings us into this place of reconciliation with the Father. Make sense? You guys with me still? Cool. Paul explains this theology in a very Paul way in uh, in his letter to the church of Rome. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 to 15 says this. It says, For if, while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but is But sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. In other words, all are sinners, even if they didn't sin in the exact same way. He is a type of the coming one. This is where we get the idea that there is a true and better Adam, because Paul says it, that Jesus is a type of Adam. And he says, but look, the gift is not like the trespass. Look, the gift is way better than the sin. For if by it one man's trespass the many died, how much more had the grace of God and the gift which comes to the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed to many? And so Paul helps us to understand that Jesus is a type of Adam, but he's not the broken, messed up Adam that we saw that failed. Jesus is the true and better and perfect Adam, and that all who are in Christ are renewed and redeemed if they've been adopted into the lineage and the family of Jesus. All those who are not apprenticing Jesus are still related to Adam and his family line. Make sense? You guys with me? This brings us to our next set of verses for today's scripture. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, says that word again, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. Paul reminds us that in Jesus being first, there is hope for our own resurrection and life if we are members of his family. Author Anthony Thistleton writes that resurrection won the victory, but it's not like we feel all of its impact immediately. It takes time. It's unfolding like a process. It's going to be fully completed at the end when God brings the final restoration to the new heavens and the new earth. This leads Paul to talk about what our future hope is all about. Jesus will hand over the kingdom to the Father who will abolish all rule and all authority and all power. But wait, this leaves us 
with another issue. If Jesus always has been and always will be God, and he's forever God, then he can't relinquish his rule, right? That's a problem. How does he give up authority? We already said he's not a lesser God than the Father God, that it's three in one, that, that's three persons of the Godhead in one essence, that's the Trinity. So how on earth is he going to give up his authority? What the heck is he talking about? Now, some of you are already falling asleep. I got it. It's okay. Hang in there. We're going to be good. You'll get to Mother's Day brunch, I promise. For the rest of you, one author explains it like this. Paul sets up a chronology in this verse. He says, Christ will first destroy his enemies. Once he does so, the, the end will come and he will offer the kingdom to God. But the kingdom mentioned here does not refer to Christ's kingly authority as the second person of the Godhead. Christ can never lose his kingship in this regard, for it's part of his deity. Rather, Paul's referring to the son's role as human messianic king or son of David. You can recover, and then you can recover. Still a thing. And so here's the deal. At some point, this, this in-between, where Jesus is standing in between humanity and the Godhead, and he's filling that role of the mediator between the two, doesn't need to be there any longer. And so Paul is saying when he surrenders that, that kingdom, he's talking about the humanity side of him that has to be the bridge between the two because we won't need that bridge between the two any longer. This is what he's talking about in verse 25. It's the current status of Christ's kingship. And in verse, uh, uh, yeah, Christ is currently subduing his enemies. And so at some point, there won't be those any longer. And so surrendering the kingdom back to the Father means we don't need that mediation any longer because there's no gap between us and God. In the beginning, God promised that rescue and restoration would be accomplished by using humanity as a vehicle or tool to accomplish his will. Today, God is still using his church as the primary vehicle for expanding his kingdom. But that's not the forever plan. It doesn't need to be. He's going to bring restoration finally at one point. He's going to take back the kingdom he he gave to the first Adam because Jesus is the true and better Adam will have brought it under control and put it in order and laid it at his feet ready to go. He's then going to take his place as a true and better king over humanity forever and ever. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about in verses 27 and 28. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. It means the father. When everything is subject to Christ, then the son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Now, I don't know about you guys, but in this moment I'm thinking, okay, this is great, but what do I do with this? What do I do with this? And Paul actually gives us an answer a little bit later in the same chapter. Skip down to verse 58 with me. Verse 58 says this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. For those of you taking notes today, this brings us to our second observation for today. Be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I've heard that somewhere before. I'm not sure. Okay. Paul says this. He says, look, I'm going to sum this up for you. Look what God's done. It's amazing. It's incredible. Therefore... 
keep doing the work God has called his church to because it's not pointless. It makes a difference in ushering in God's kingdom. Now, what is that work? Well, here's the Christianese words for it, evangelism and discipleship. It comes from Jesus' command in Matthew 28. We call this the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Fam, first we have to answer the question, are we in Adam's family? <laughs> Thank you, thank you, as cool as Wednesday is. Or are we in Jesus' family? If we can't answer that question, then none of this really matters. If we, the, if we are the adopted daughters and sons of the living God, then we have a job in the family business that we are called to. What is that? It's to model Jesus to the people around us. It has not changed from the time of Adam and Eve. To help people to know and love and serve Jesus because the hope we have in what Jesus has done. To walk people with people on their journey in what Jesus uh, is doing with others. We're, we're, to, we're to help other people see what it means to journey with Jesus. To help people come to a place where they can give their testimony of what Christ has done in them through the act of baptism. But it's not in vain. It's not in vain. Because the church is the primary vehicle of God's expanding his kingdom, every little thing we do as an apprentice of Jesus, as a part of expanding God's kingdom and fulfilling the work of the family business. Guess what? God has called you and equipped you to do the job where you, whether you realize it or not if you're an apprentice of Jesus. Some of you aren't yet in the family. And here's the good news. The Bible says adoption into the family isn't based on how good you are or what you accomplish in your life. It's not how holy you can be or even how good looking you are, which is good news for some of us. Now, the Bible says that we need faith to be adopted, faith in Jesus. But the amazing part about it is that the Bible says we don't even have to come up with our own faith. That God literally just gives it to us. Here you go. Use this. That's incredible. He works in our hearts before we are even able to acknowledge him as God. While we were yet enemies of his, he began to do the work in us. He allows us to belong even before we believe. That is an incredibly generous and amazing God. See, our entry into the family of God is based on who God is and what God's done. But we still have to use that faith and acknowledge what God has done. I think that's pretty fair. This morning, we'd love to pray with you. If you're a Jesus apprentice but, but know that you haven't been doing what God has called you to do, then we'd love to stand with you as you bring that to God. For those of you who know you're not a part of the family of Jesus and you want to be, we would love to help you take those next steps. Either way, we're going to have a couple people standing on either side of the stage, and they would love to talk with you and pray with you. They're going to be here during this last song. They'll be here uh, at, after service. And so I would welcome you to take those physical steps into the spiritual ones. Good? Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing generosity, for your goodness, for your kindness. For the fact that we don't have to come up with on our own the ability to be good or to act good or to look good, but that you make us good because you are good. Father, whether we are apprenticing you or we're still trying to figure this out, I pray you'd meet us right where we're at. Thank you that you've created a space for us to belong before we even believe. Help us to see and understand and hear you 
right where we're at. We ask these things in the name of Jesus.